the events that happened in this final week. So Mark 11 starts, John 12, you know, and then through to, to 19. Well, that was the crucifixion, but of course there's the resurrection and his appearing to the disciples. So the, the majority of, of each gospel is really, really given over to these events. So as you can see, I can only give you an overview this morning, but I hope it, it stirs you to encounter him in his final week this week. So Jesus' final week, and on the Hebrew calendar, it's, we're looking primarily at the days that, we, that on the Hebrew calendar are called Nisan uh, 10 to 14. Uh, 10 is, is typically what we know as Palm Sunday, and 14 is the day he was crucified. And of course, in the Exodus story, which is celebrated and remembered and we remembered that last night. Uh, and every year we remember this in the Exodus story. The Passover lambs were killed on Nisan 14. The ones that the Israelites then put their blood on the doorposts. And that, then that whole series um, sequence of events followed that, which led to their deliverance and their leaving Egypt. So the days are super important in this very short time frame, this short window Five days, five, six, seven days of Jesus' life compared to his 30-plus years on the earth. So very, very significant. And, and I just want to ask the Holy Spirit that you would really open our eyes to understand and to see and to be in awe and wonder and to worship Jesus this morning. Fill our hearts with fresh gratitude as we look at some of these very familiar events. And Jesus, we just want to say this morning that we love you and we thank you. Amen. So we'll start with, I said, I said Nisan 10 to 14, but let's just back it up two days. Because at the very beginning of chapter 12, John chapter 12, this is what it says. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead and here a dinner was given. In Jesus' honor. That's how chapter 12 begins. So six days, it's very clear, John's very specific, six days before Passover, six days before Jesus is crucified, that Jesus arrives in this um, township of Bethany. And this, uh, this place, Bethany, is, is approximately two miles walk. It's not very far from Jerusalem. And Jesus has friends there. Mary and Martha, and Lazarus, whom he has raised from the dead. Now, I don't have time to go into some of the detail this morning. I wish I could. But suffice to say, you'll have to just believe me, that chapter 11, which precedes chapter 12, is the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And it would have occurred approximately six weeks before chapter 12 before this six days before the Passover. So what's happened in the interim? Now, that whole event, chapter 11, um, really I recommend you start from chapter 11 because the, the account of the resurrection of Lazarus is, the way I, I read it and I see it in the scripture, is it's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen with Jesus. And it's to bring glory. You know, it's not unto death, that's what Jesus said. But it's to bring glory to the Father 
and, and through the son. And if you flick over to chapter 12, um, you'll notice that in John's account, there's a section starting from verse 20 where the disciples come to him because there were some Greeks who'd come to worship at the festival and they asked to see Jesus. The rest of chapter 12 is a very powerful commentary on what Jesus is about to do and what it means. And you will see overtones of Lazarus' resurrection all the way through that. I really can't say much more than that. But this, this whole thing of Lazarus being raised from the dead, there's so many things that it is. It's a comfort. It's meant to be, a, I think, a comfort to the disciples. It's all about the Father glorifying himself through the Son at this particular time, which is what the Son says, you know, right at the very end, Father, now is the time. Glorify me, you know. It, the language is, is beautiful. The, the days in the tomb. And, of course, Lazarus' resurrection created an incredible stir. A lot of hostility, actually. People were amazed and they were outraged. And it was from that day onwards that the chief um, priests, uh, the, the scribes and the elders of Sanhedrin, they began to plot together to kill Jesus. And interestingly, it says in chapter 12 that because of Lazarus' testimony, like he keeps telling people that he died and was raised to life... So they're like, well, we've got to kill him as well. Now, we're not told if Lazarus ends up being killed. We just don't, we don't, we're not told that. But they wanted to kill Lazarus and Jesus because the testimony of Jesus was out of control. <laughs> so because of the intensity of that, that situation and that event, Jesus and his disciples, they withdraw to this, this village of Ephraim. Now, this village of Ephraim is about 13 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So it'll probably take you a comfortable walk. I don't know how fast Jesus and his disciples walked. There seemed to be a lot of teaching going on, so it probably took them twice as long. But four hours, let's say, you could walk that in. And this is where Jesus has walked from, I believe, because that's the, the event, if you put the sequence together. He's walked with his disciples from the village of Ephraim and he's arriving now six days before the Passover, which makes it Nisan, the mathematicians, 14 minus 6. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. Nisan 8. Now, I believe that was a Friday. And I believe that Jesus' goal would have been to arrive at Bethany before the Saturday Sabbath. Because you don't do long walks on the Sabbath. And he would have wanted to have celebrated that meal with his friends at the start of the Passover week. So, so Friday, Nisan 8, during the day, Jesus arrives in Bethany. And it says that that night, he has this meal. He's, he's hosted. There's a special dinner in his honor in the house of Simon and Mary and Martha and Lazarus and other disciples. And uh, we're not told exactly who was there, but there were people there. This is a really interesting account because at this meal, this is that, that beautiful occasion when Mary 
breaks open this very precious, costly ointment, this, this spikenard perfume. And it probably cost about a, 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 about a year's wages. Now, just say that to yourself. What do I earn in a year? A year's wages. And she breaks it over his feet in a matter of moments. So we have this beautiful act of devotion, a costly act of devotion. And in stark contrast to that, Judas comes into view. And he's also at the meal table, and he's, he's indignant. He's like, a year's wages. What a waste of money. And to justify his own greed, he then says, oh, that could have helped so many poor people. And Jesus fully knew his heart. And he defends Mary's priorities. And he says it was intended that this costly perfume would be kept for my burial. He says to Judas, leave her alone. The poor you will always have with you. I won't always be with you. And he affirms what she's done. And, I'm, and, I, and I just think to myself in that moment, what a precious gift that was to Jesus. In those few days before his crucifixion, in those few days, precious days, that this one, Mary, Mary of Bethany, extravagantly worships him and anoints his feet with this burial perfume. And it's, it's spikenard and it, it's like a, an essential oil and that perfume would have lingered on his, his skin. And I think I've said this before, but I can imagine as he was bearing the cross to Golgotha and as even as he's bent over and even when he drops to the ground, even the lingering aromas of those essential oils reminding him of that precious act. It's a beautiful picture. At the same time, we see Jesus dealing with a betrayer, someone who is part of his 12, someone who John calls a thief because he used to help himself. You know, I'm sure he justified it, but he would help himself because he was the keeper of the money. And this is the one now coming into focus. We don't hear much about Judas in other times, but here he is in focus. Extravagant love, would-be betrayer, the one who is getting ready to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, sitting at the same table at the start of the Passover week. Sunset that same day becomes Nisan 9. So that's where this meal, that's the time that this meal is taking place, which, um, sorry, Sunset Friday is not Nisan 9. Sorry, so, so Friday the 8th, he arrives in Bethany. That night, it becomes Nisan 9, as they're even seated around that table, which is the Sabbath day. So not too much would have happened. They would have enjoyed each other's company. And then Nisan 10 starts that evening, Saturday evening. And if you're wondering why that is, that's because that's the way the Jewish calendar works. That's how they count the days and the nights. It starts in the evening. And so Sunday, Nisan 10, is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
and you can see it says there, the next day, verse 12 of chapter 12, Jesus comes to, the Jerus- to Jerusalem as king. Now this becomes really interesting because, well, let's look at the lamb. Let's look at the significance of the lamb in this whole Passover story. So Pesach, which is the Hebrew name uh, for the Passover feast, literally means the lamb. In case you didn't know that, that's what it means. Pesach is the lamb. And, and all those years ago, in the land of Egypt, God instructed each family on Nisan 10. Now, this is coming through, through Moses. These are the instructions to all the people, the Israelites. God instructed each family to take an unblemished year-old male lamb to their home on the 10th day of the first month. And they were to take care of the lamb and they were to make sure that the lamb remained perfect. They had to pick an unblemished one, but it had to stay perfect. You know, no roughhousing with the lamb and breaking its leg or anything like that, you know, that sort of stuff. You've got to make sure that this lamb is looked after because when it is eventually killed, it must be perfect. And on that fourth day, Nisan 14, at twilight, they were to kill the lamb and take some of the blood and place it on the two doorposts and the lintel of their house. We know the story. You've been through it last night. And then the the angel of the Lord, the avenging angel, passed over the homes that had protected themselves by placing the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. I just want to give you a little bit of quick, quickly, a little bit of background, interesting um, history that that we don't, uh, that Moses doesn't go into in this in this account. The Jewish Encyclopedia, um, which is, is sourced um, and has sourced, you know, the Mishnah, the Talmud, and, and other um, Jewish writings, says this: one of the major Egyptian gods. Now, hopefully, in your meals last night, this thing came came out that actually each plague that God sent was a, was confronting a particular Egyptian god. Did you discuss that last night in some of your homes? Yep, that's what it is. So now, not sure if you you discussed this one. You may have. One of the major Egyptian gods was the sheep or the ram god Amun. On Nisan 10, God miraculously allowed the Israelites to take lambs from among the Egyptians despite the the humiliation of their deity And they tied these lambs to their bedposts. According to Midrash, the Israelites explained that they intended to sacrifice these lambs by the Lord's command, who would then destroy the firstborn of Egypt. Now this is the tenth judgment, okay? So the Egyptians are learning something by this stage. When the Egyptian firstborn heard this, they begged their fathers to let the Israelites go. But their cries were ignored until a civil war broke out in which many Egyptians were killed. This war of the firstborn is considered a great miracle that helped deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Isn't that interesting? So this lamb, these lambs that they're taking, one for every family and tying to their bedpost, this is, a, this is like a sacred animal. This is like the sacred cows for the, you know, in India. So this, so this is causing quite a stir. 
and it's provoking questions. What are you doing? And it also makes sense in, in Exodus 8.26 when Moses um, speaks uh, to Pharaoh. Well, actually, Pharaoh says to Moses, first of all, go sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses replied, that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? That's Exodus chapter 8. And you can see here that Moses, I mean, he understands. He grew up in Egypt, right? He knows that if the Israelites sacrifice this particular animal, it's going to stir a lot of trouble. <laughs> Interesting background. So Nisan 10, the animals are chosen and they're brought into the homes of the Israelites. Well, Nisan 10, remember that Jesus is fulfilling everything. He is the fulfillment of the first Passover in every way and he is yet to fulfill it completely when he returns. So things that were fulfilled, well, Nisan 10, those lambs were chosen. Nisan 10, Jesus having been anointed. And some people, you know, you can see the picture there where Mary has anointed him, if you like, identified him, singled him out as being the precious lamb of God. When he gets up, and you've got the whole story of him getting the colt and how that happens and everything, and that's another fulfillment of scripture. I'll come to those in a minute. He rides into Jerusalem on the same day that the carefully selected Passover lamb, carefully selected by the religious leaders, the Passover lamb that would be sacrificed on Nisan 14 in the temple, that lamb is paraded into Jerusalem from Bethany into the temple courts. That lamb is coming into Jerusalem on the same day as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world rides in prophesied on a donkey. And of course, people who are believing that he's the Messiah, they are quick to put their cloaks on the ground. They are quick to wave their palm branches and say, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And proclaim him as king and even the children. And again, the stir that this creates. And we have this contrast again. You see, in this final week, the middle ground is being completely cut out. Because by the end of the week, you're either going to worship him or you're going to cry out for his crucifixion. And at the start of the week, there were many worshipping him. Because they wanted him to come in. And they wanted him to take charge. And they wanted him to deliver them from the Roman oppression as prophesied. But it was not God's time. And they missed his coming. In fact, Luke's account, it's very interesting. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41 and 42, this is what Luke records. It's only in Luke's gospel. As Jesus approached to Jerusalem, and he's on the donkey, and saw the city, he wept 
over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Your enemies will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So even as Jesus is coming in and people are shouting and there's praises, he's looking at Jerusalem and there's a grief that is filling his heart because he knows that he's about to pronounce another 40 years around the desert for this people because they did not recognize him and they did not put their faith in him. They did not know, they did not understand the times and the seasons and they missed his coming. And in fact, they crucified him. They fulfilled Isaiah 53 because they were ever hearing but not perceiving, seeing but blinded. Monday, Nisan 11. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the text tells us actually that if you look at Mark 11, he entered Jerusalem, Nisan 10, and he went into the temple courts and it says he looked around at everything. But since it was late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. What, I wonder what he was thinking. He's, he's just ridden in, he's had, he's had accolades, he's had confrontation, you know. It's just all, the tension is increasing, the hostility, the desire to kill him, the rage of those who cannot stand what he's doing, and they hate the testimony of Jesus. And he goes into the temple courts and he's looking around. What do you think he was thinking? It doesn't say. But the next morning, on his way into Jerusalem... Nisan 11, Monday morning, he sees a fig tree and he thought, I feel hungry, I wouldn't mind eating that fruit. But he comes to it and it's not bearing fruit. It's not, the, the fruit, there's no fruit on it. It's not fruit bearing. It's probably got, at that stage, because it's got leaves. Actually, the fruit comes first in the fig, right? You can see the fruit and then the leaves. Anyway, there's no figs under the leaves and there should be and all this. And it's a prophetic picture because Jesus speaks to that fig tree and he curses it. And you see, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel in the Old Testament. Many times you'll see, whether it's a basket of figs that the prophet has seen. Anyway, you can look for that typology through through the scriptures. And he, he, curses, he, he curses it and he says, you will never bear fruit again. And he carries on, he moves in, he moves into Jerusalem and the very next thing he does is he goes to the temple and he begins to cleanse the temple. Do you remember this? And he rebukes them. You den of robbers. You've made my father's house. This is a house of prayer for all people. You've made it a a den of thieves. And he drives them out and he sends them away and he, he, he prevents them. He stops them from selling the merchandise. He shuts it all down. And he's acting with incredible authority, actually. Because, I mean, you know, you and I could go into the temple and try that on. It would be interesting to see what happened, wouldn't it? But when Jesus does it, everyone scatters. But can you imagine what he was feeling? He went in and he saw all of that. 
He saw all of that the night before. I reckon he was agonizing over that. And the father was talking to him. Yeah, Jesus, do it again. It wasn't the first time he'd done this. Go in there. Go in there and prophesy. Prophesy again, Jesus. You know, a lot of what Jesus is doing in this week is, is exactly that. He's giving people the opportunity to repent, isn't he? And, and as each day unfolds, Nisan 11 to 13, you know, the Monday through to really the next three and a half days, Jesus is prophesying and he's teaching and he's being questioned and tested just like the lambs that were picked on Nisan 10 were poked and prodded and checked and tested to make sure that they were without sin defect. And this is what was going on. They were trying to trick Jesus. They were trying to get him to say things and they could say, aha, see, blasphemy. You're not that, whatever, and kill him. And the intensity is increasing during this time. It's interesting, isn't it? He continues to prophesy. He, he knows the day that he has to get crucified, if I can put it that way. He knows exactly the day that he needs to be crucified. And it has been ordained that all the circumstances and events of that week will lead to him being crucified at exactly on exactly the day when the Passover lambs are killed and in fact... He breathes his last as they are being killed between 3 p.m. or around, sun, about around, uh, around twilight. He's on the cross at 9 a.m. There's darkness at 12 and 3 p.m. He breathes his last. And those Paso that Passover lamb was killed in the temple at 3 p.m. Now, logistically, you're saying to yourself, how could all those Passover lambs be killed on that day? Well, they probably weren't. It would have been a process, but the Passover lamb in the temple on Nisad 14 was killed at 3 p.m. because there was an extra lamb sacrificed on that particular day because it was Passover. That's an incredible feat, isn't it? And Jesus walks through this week He's resolute. Nothing's distracting him. He's encountering, he's engaging people. He's aware of the ones who love him. He's aware of the ones who hate him. And he walks through that week with absolute determination. Does he grieve? Yes, he does. He grieves in that week. Is he concerned about the actual crucifixion itself? Yes, he is. The Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but yours, but Father, can this, can this cup be taken from me? But he never, ever, never, ever entertains not following through and bringing the Father glory. And what I was saying before about he prophesies, he, 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 give, he, bring, he brings the testimony he brings truth and he gives those religious leaders every opportunity to turn. And some of them did, but most of them didn't. 
And he pronounces in Matthew 23 these seven judgments in that final week. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. Read them in in Matthew 23. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. And then he ends up saying at the end of Matthew 23, woe to, you know, after these seven woes, I tell you, until you, and I believe he's primarily speaking to those leaders of the nation who direct the spiritual affairs of Israel. Woe to, you know, woe to you until you say, until you say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until you say that, you will not see me again. But we read, don't we, in the Old Testament, Zechariah prophesies that day is coming. And God will give them a spirit of grace and supplication when they look upon the one they mor- that they pierce. When they see him, I believe when they see him in the sky, perhaps, when he returns. But they're going to gaze upon him. They're going to recognize him. The one they pierced. And it says... God will give them a spirit of grace and supplication and they're going to cry out. They're going to cry out. It's going to be worse than than the wailing when Josiah was killed. That's what it's actually referring to. It's It's going to be worse than that. They're going to cry and weep and mourn. Their hearts will be turned and all Israel, as Paul says, will be saved in a day. All Israel will be saved. That day is coming, but this was not the day. This was the day when Jesus had to pronounce judgments again. And he knew and he he mourned the fact. And yeah, as I said, coming into Jerusalem. but And also in Matthew 24. I mean, Jesus is grieving the fact that hardened Israel, he's going to have to release judgment. He's going to, you know what I'm saying? His death, in fact, is going to release judgment. His death is going to release judgment. He says to them, actually, I've not come to judge, I've come to save. But he talks about judgment coming. And we see in Revelation 5, don't we, that the one who is worthy to open the scroll, sealed with seven seals in the Father's right hand, the one who is worthy is the slain lamb because he was slain. And and because the shedding of his blood redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He's the one. He's the one. He's sinless, perfect, became a man, suffered. He's the one. He's worthy to judge. Who else is worthy to judge? You or me? Who else? No one was found in the heavens, on the earth, underneath the earth. No one. And John wept because no one No one was worthy. No one could claim to be pure and innocent and take the wrath, the punishment for my sin, for your sin, in their body, shed their blood, become the fitting and only suitable sacrifice and then be worthy to release the judgments. Only one, Jesus Only Jesus. And yet he wept over Jerusalem at this time. 
He sat around a final meal with his disciples and he knew who his betrayer was. And all he says to him was, go and do what you have to do and do it quickly. It could have struck him dead. But Jesus walked with Judas. Imagine this. Ask yourself, Jesus walked, talked, ate meals, put in charge of the money. Judas gave Judas every opportunity to repent. It's incredible, isn't it? And yet he never did. We see all of these these scenarios swirling to their climactic conclusion in this final week. Nisan 14 begins at sunset on Wednesday. You're counting the days. And some of you are going, well, that means Jesus was crucified on Thursday, if that's what you're saying. I'm saying that's what I believe. Jesus is going to let us know one day, but that's what I believe. Because it fits all the time frames. It fits the prophecy, the prophecy of, of, you know, three days and three nights that Jesus declared. Three days and three nights. You know, he's talking about Jonah in the belly of the whale. But this three days and three nights, after three days, you know, I'll be resurrected. Friday to Sunday doesn't quite make it. You know, once every seven years as well, if you, if you understand the, the Hebrew calendar, you know that the, the Passover day, Nisan 14, in that evening, okay, another day is ticking over. So Nisan 15 begins at 6 p.m. That's when they actually have the cedar meal. That meal we had last night, that's when they have it. Last night was Passover, okay? Today is Nisan 15. So today is a Sabbath in Israel. Whatever day of the week it falls on, it's a Sabbath because it's the first day of the week of unleavened bread. And the last day of the week of unleavened bread is also a Sabbath. So whatever day it falls on, it's a Sabbath. And about every seven years, that means that you're going to have the first day of unleavened bread, Sabbath, and it's going to back on to a regular weekly Saturday Sabbath, followed by Sunday, the first day of the week. And I believe in the year that Jesus was crucified, that was the pattern. And so he was taken off the cross before sunset on Nisan 14, before it ticked over to Nisan 15, before it ticked over to that first Sabbath of the Unleavened Bread Festival. Because they had to get him off before the, Passover, you know, before the Sabbath. And it says in John, the day of preparation for that Sabbath. So they have this Sabbath, get to the end of that, and what ticks over? The next Sabbath, which is a Saturday now. And then they visit the tomb for the first time. It, also, it does explain as well why they would have taken so long to go to the tomb. They couldn't buy stuff to take to the tomb, and, they, and, and quite possibly the distance was n- not kosher on a, on a Sabbath. You, there's only short walks because when Lazarus was killed it would appear that that tomb it was customary for the tomb to remain open until 
it was a bit not good to have it open. And people would go and mourn, right? And this is one of the questions because <laughs> the, chief, the religious leaders come after Jesus has been put on the cross and they come to Pilate and they say, we need to get a, put, we need to get a, a, a big rock put over that because you know the disciples are going to come and steal him. So they arrange for a big stone to be put over the tomb which belongs to Joseph of Arimathea. He's on the ruling council of Jews, but he's a secret disciple. And Nicodemus, who also gave his life to Jesus, helped to take Jesus' body off the cross and put him in this tomb. So much in this story. Jesus fulfills prophecy. Just going to whip through these very quickly. It's important to know that he was fulfilling all righteousness. Everything had an order. Everything has its right place. I don't have time to read. We don't have time to read the fulfillments. But I want you to have a look at these. The first prophecy, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. Righteous and victorious, riding on a donkey. That was fulfilled in John chapter 12, verses 12 to 15. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief, fulfilled. John 12, 37 and 38. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, Mark 15, 5, fulfilled. Prophecy, Psalm 22, read that whole psalm. <laughs> it's an amazing messianic prophecy. I can count all my bones. My bones stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. It's a picture of someone hanging on a cross and the soldiers who played games and gambled and divided up his garment that had never been divided before. Numbers 9.12 They must not leave any of it, that is the lamb, until morning or break any of its bones. When they celebrate the Passover, they must follow all the regulations. Fulfilled, John 19, 23 and 24. They took Jesus down. They did not break a bone of his body. Normally they would. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen to 16. My life is poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. That's what it's like for someone hanging on a cross. My heart is like wax melting within me. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The psalmist is seeing what is fulfilled. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Back to Isaiah 53. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Fulfilled, 1 Peter 2, 24. 53.9, Isaiah. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. 
he was put in a rich man's grave. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. Do you know they took what is equivalent of 34 kilos of myrrh and aloes to anoint Jesus' body? The tomb had never been used before. He'd bought it for his own family and Jesus used it. Psalm 16.10 Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay fulfilled. Jesus' final week. He is faithful to the end. If the worship team can come. He is faithful to the end. Totally faithful. Isn't he awesome? Let's fix our gaze on him. Let's fix our gaze on him. Let's fix our gaze on him this week again. The author and perfecter of our faith. Where do I fall short? Let's just be honest and transparent in his presence. Where do I fall short? Jesus. So many ways. So many ways I fall short. Jesus, am I holding on to unforgiveness? You, for, you forgave. You had Judas in your inner 12. Jesus, where, where am I not releasing trust and forgiveness? Do my priorities express a deep love, the same kind of love that Mary had for Jesus? When something costs me something, do I resent it? Or do I think of him? Have I counted the cost to follow Jesus? Am I willing? been reading Revelation and John's opening chapter he says I John your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus and I heard and he carries on he begins to unfold the vision but that's how he describes himself are you a brother a sister a companion in the suffering and the kingdom the patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus are you a friend of the bridegroom this morning let's stand and worship him together